Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening. I ask you to take your seat. That we've got some wisdom to digest this evening. And uh, let me just say a few words as introduction. I'm Mark Scott. I'm Vice Chancellor of the University of Sydney, and it's wonderful to be able to uh, welcome you all here tonight. Um, if you're if you're new to Sydney or you don't know this part of the world, we are in one of the um, oldest buildings in Sydney, somewhat redecorated, I imagine, from the late 1700s, on one of the oldest streets uh, in Sydney, you know, two centuries of history. But, but here in Sydney, we're on the land of the Gadigal, and the Gadigal people have been uh, exploring and uh, teaching and discovering for hundreds of centuries, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. Uh, it's my uh, pleasure tonight to introduce you all, as you, I'm sure you know, to Professor Mike Green, who's um, the new CEO of the um, United States Study Centre. Um, my early in, uh, encounters with Mike, uh, I think we, we, we met up on a Zoom, but there was great excitement at the university at Mike's pending uh, appointment. Uh, but I first caught up with him at the um, ANZUS 70th anniversary dinner, a big dinner at uh, Parliament House. Uh, the crowds had gathered, uh, the great and the good, uh, to celebrate 70 years of ANZUS. Um, and I was struck the night I was, I was with Mike, had just got off the plane from the US. Uh, John Howard was on our table. Um, Maurice Payne was on our table. I was feeling well on that evening. I wasn't feeling as well about 18 hours later when I tested positive for COVID. And I thought, I've killed Mike Green, I thought, you know, and John Howard. I thought it could have been a very, um, very big uh, event, but, but Mike is made of sterner stuff than me and uh, charged right through. But there was great excitement, I think, at Mike's appointment and what Mike's appointment might mean uh, for the US Studies Centre, the University of Sydney, and I think the community of scholars here engaged fundamentally in the conversation around the relationship between Australia and the United States and more broadly into the region. Uh, tonight, he's joining uh, US Study Centre non-resident senior fellow, Dr. Levina Lee, to discuss his, his new book, A Line of Advantage, Japan's Great Strategy in the Era of Abe Shinzo, published earlier in this year, and of course now brought into very strong and timely focus given uh, Abe's tragic death in July, a poignant moment that uh, caused the world to stop and to reflect and shock the world. and. Um, Mike's book provides groundbreaking and timely account of Japan's strategic thinking uh, under Abe, and now uh, we're so fortunate tonight, Mike will be able to reflect on the experience of the year and what it all means uh, now for us. Um, as we all know, an internationally renowned Asia expert served several US presidents. Um, when I first caught up with Mike, he'd just come back on a delegation to Taipei where he was uh, sent by President Biden to reassure its leadership of US commitment um, to East Asia at the time of the uh, Ukraine crisis. Special Assistant to President George W. Bush for National Security and a Senior Director for Asia. Uh, from 2001 to 2005, Director of Asian Affairs at the National Security Council. And before joining us at the US Studies Centre, he was Senior Vice President for Asia at the Centre for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C., and also served as the Director of the Asian Studies Program at Georgetown University. I think it's particularly, you know, it's all that experience, but in talking with Mike, I'm so excited to have this great partnership continue with the University of Sydney, and I know his deep engagement with higher education, his desire to engage with students augurs so well for the US Studies Centre uh, under his leadership. 
And together, you know, we were delighted to host Ambassador Kennedy on her first visit to campus today. She had a good session with Mike and the team at uh, the US Studies Centre, then came up and uh, we had a great meeting as well. And then she went and visited uh, our nanotechnology centre. Uh, where there's such important work taking place, including a vital uh, partnership with Microsoft. Um, before Mike arrived, in the, uh, the first period of the time of the study centre, the centre's motto was analysis of America, insights for Australia. But now they've added a new element reflecting a fresh new direction for the centre as well. Analysis of America, insights for Australia and solutions for the alliance. I, I like that, and one of the things I've been uh, saying, lots of nods in the room on that, Mike, you've, you've landed that nicely and well. Um, one of the things I've been uh, saying at the university since I started is that we need to be in the solutions business. And really part of our social capital, the way we deliver a return on the investment that exists for us is, is not just to be a place of great scholarship, a place of great teaching and learning, but a place that's vitally engaged at at the table, engaging with the complexities of the, and the needs of the hour and using all that expertise and wisdom that we have to really broker solutions and to bring insights in a meaningful way that helps those in power um, make the complex decisions and trade-offs that they need to make. And we've talked a lot about being in the solutions business. And this week I launched um, the new 10-year strategy for the University of Sydney. We've thought a lot about what we want to be like in 2032, a great global university, but a great global university attacking the great global challenges. Not um, in an ivory tower, not tucked away on the hill, but sleeves rolled up at the table, engaged with the complexities of the day, attacking those great global challenges. And I think that's what Mike brings, I think, to the US Studies Centre. I think his experience in the region uh, from Japan and through the region just brings a richness and depth to the work that the study centre can engage in as well. So we're delighted to have him as a, a friend, a colleague, a, a neighbour and part of the university community. I know, Mike, our students are really going to love engaging with you as well. Our students, I think, have an extraordinary interest in the United States and your deep insight and wisdom is going to be uh, tremendously valuable for them as well. So congratulations, uh, Mike, on the book. And congratulations and thank you for taking up the invitation to join us at the centre. And it's my pleasure to invite you on the stage now to join Dr Lee um, in conversation. Will you welcome Mike and Levina? Hello. Uh, good evening to all of you. And um, welcome to this evening's event. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Mike, and I'm sure all of you are really looking forward to hearing his insights. Um, first of all, to you, Mike, welcome to Sydney. It's been a long journey to get here, and I hope that you and your family are settling in on such a big move. Mm. Um, and I think I speak for many of you that we're all very curious to hear a little bit more about your unique vision for the US Study Centre and what you see as your main objectives and what do you have planned in putting this vision um, together? Well, thanks very much, Lavina, and thanks, thanks all um, for coming. And we'll have an interesting exchange, I hope, about the book and the scholarship I've done about the US Study Center, about US-Australia relations, and 
and anything else that's on your mind, because we'll have, a, I understand, a Q&A from the audience. Um, so, so my vision for the, for the center, um, I feel like I just went to the um, optometrist and got new glasses, because my vision for the center has now been enhanced <laughs> by Mark and, and Kirsten and the university's vision for uh, the University of Sydney. And um, uh, I am excited to be part of the university's community. Um, I've been really grateful for the leadership from Mark Bailey and the board and from the AAA. Um, the reception we've received from DFAT and Defense and Home Affairs in Canberra from the US Embassy. One of my friends who works at another think tank here said, you know, Mike, how are you going to do this? The governance structure of that center is so complicated. You've got the university, you've got the AAA, you've got defense, you've got the US Embassy, you've got corporations. I said, that's exactly where I want to be. Because um, I think the vision for us is, uh, the reason we added solutions is because the, the foundational um, purpose of the center, I was in the Oval Office uh, with uh, John Howard and President Bush when uh, Prime Minister Howard proposed this idea to President Bush. The dirty little secret is he wanted Bush to pay for half and he wouldn't. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, the, the, the idea at the time was in the wake of the Iraq War, younger Australians had sort of lost their, their understanding of, of America and the alliance, understandably. So the foundational purpose really was analysis of America, insights for Australia. But we're increasingly in an era mm. where the problems facing Australia, uh, uh, the United States, Japan, these are problems that defy traditional you know, bureaucratic lines. The governments um, and maybe universities are all designed vertically, but the problems are all now increasingly horizontal. So uh, the core theory of impact that we've been discussing at the center is um, uh, exactly how do we take advantage of where we are, which is at the intersection of the University of the United States and Australia, increasingly now Japan as well because of my background, corporate sector, <coughs> to look at um, the, um, the, the problems of, of innovation. This ambassador was very excited. She told me to go to the, to the nanotechnology lab. How do you innovate in an open, innovative architecture when at the same time, the national security establishment in both the US and Australia are, for obvious reasons, trying to control technology? I mean, that, that's not a dialogue that government can do alone or universities can do alone. So uh, it, the short version of our vision is we want to work with the university. We want to work with the governments, both governments, with corporations and scholars, and convene and start looking for solutions. Um, we have a outstanding staff. Peter Dean has joined us. I, I could not be more uh, delighted. We're um, soon going to announce a new technology director to help with this. Um, but we'll keep doing the core mission, which is teaching about America. Um, Aaron Nergis and the academic staff are um, uh, Mark among the highest rated professors at the university. <laughs> and the enrollments are up in our courses. Um, and so uh, I, you know, on Ambassador Kennedy's delegation were two of our graduates <laughs> who were staffing her. So um, that's the core and original mission which, which we're very dedicated to and which the faculty is doing a wonderful job fulfilling. Um, so that's it, it, sort of in a nutshell. It's yeah. exciting. I, I uh, think the fact that we are at the intersection of these great stakeholders is exactly what's going to make it so interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, we look forward to uh, reading more about the agenda and the research outputs that no doubt will be coming very soon. Now, I also wanted to ask you, obviously, about um, your new book. Uh, and I think many of you have a copy. Mm -hmm. I don't want to speak <clears throat> out of turn in case not all of you got one. Um, but we've got your book, Line of Advantage, 
Japan's grand strategy in the era of Shinzo Abe. Now, when you were writing this book um, and looking forward to events like these when you finished it, um, I'm sure you could never have anticipated that we'd be speaking now in, a, in the context of um, the very tragic assassination of Shinzo Abe, um, who I know most of you would agree was one of the most admired leaders around the world for, for good reason. Now, what prompted you to write this book and what do you think are the key messages that we should take away about Shinzo Abe's mark on Japanese grand strategy? So I, I wrote the book um, at a time when I did not realize I'd be coming to the University of Sydney. If I'd known that, I would have written something like Kevin Rudd and the era of Australian grand strategy or something. <laughs> Kevin's a friend, or Scott Morrison or whoever. Um, uh, but I didn't know I was going to be coming here. And um, as a scholar, my original dissertation and, my, and actually probably most of my books have been on Japan. Yeah. Um, so I wrote it because, um, like any good scholar, um, somebody offered me money. <laughs> uh, uh, the Smith Richardson Foundation came to me and they said, the board said, look, Japan's um, in a really interesting place. Abe's strategy is really significant. You know him personally, I do. Um, and you've written articles. We really like to fund a, a book project. So you're an academic, you know how that works. Yep, yep. Um, and I really got into it. Abe Shinzo, when I was in the White House as senior uh, special assistant to President Book for the Indo-Pacific, for Asia, um, Abe was um, Prime Minister Koizumi's, um, uh, the title was Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary. So I speak Japanese, I went to the University of Tokyo, um, and so whenever we had a problem, you know, we slapped steel tariffs on Australia and Japan, two of our closest allies in 2004, and so it was my job to call Abe, to tell him to tell the Prime Minister. So I, I got to know him because I was always the guy who had to call him and, and using my most polite Japanese say, <laughs> very sorry, but we're going to hit you with seal taps, or I'm very, so um, uh, we hit it off quite well, and um, uh, so I, I knew him, and, and um, uh, in many ways admired him, he was complicated, um, but the real reason for the book is that um, Abe transformed Japan's role in Asia, Japan's grand strategy, in a way no Japanese leader has since Yoshida Shigeru, the first great prime minister of Japan. And Yoshida um, set a course for Japan after the war called the Yoshida Doctrine, which we all know well, Japan would not play a major military role. It would focus on its economy, and it would, it would rely on the United States and, um, and, and recover and grow rich. Abe changed that. Abe's uh, foreign policy strategy is, and most Japanese scholars right, left, and center agree with this. This is now the trajectory we see with Japan. And, and even the opposition in Japan has largely embraced it. And the strategy involves um, shaping this environment and building partnerships. Um, core elements are the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which Australia and the US have joined now, which is infrastructure investment in Southeast Asia and South Asia, yeah. um, as China's doing Belt and Road. Let's, let's build quality infrastructure. Um, it's maritime alignment, um, the quad. Yeah. Um, in particular, but also the U.S.-Japan-Australia trilateral security relationship. Um, it's doing more with less. Japan's economy has slowed, so Abe created a National Security Council, centralized decision-making. You know, the art of strategy, Clausewitz argued, is unity is strength. So getting rid of stove piping. So he did all these things. Mm. But what's remarkable about Abe, and, and people don't always appreciate this, is... Um, 
he changed Japan's directory, but he also trained, changed America's and Australia's uh, and, and Europe's. Um, when Abe became prime minister in 2012, in public opinion polls in the United States, um, a plurality of Americans said, in the future, we should cooperate with China more than Japan or Australia. Uh, Chicago Council on Global Affairs in 2012. In 2019, after Abe had been prime minister for almost eight years, they asked the question again, and over two-thirds of Americans said we should cooperate with Japan and Australia. So um, the Quad and all of this, um, and the, the term Indo-Pacific itself, um, although as we know, Rory Metcalf and others here developed it, Abe made it um, the, the concept that, that the Trump administration and Biden administration uh, followed. And I argue in the book, no leader has had more influence on US strategy towards China than Abe. And I just end by saying the interesting part about it, and I have a piece coming out in Foreign Affairs uh, soon on this, is Abe toughened up the American, and some, to some extent Australian and European spine on China. But he wanted a relationship with China. <laughs> yeah, Abe had a pretty decent relationship with Xi Jinping towards the end of his term, even though they couldn't stand each other first, because he knew, like the Australian government knows, that um, uh, we, we need a productive relationship with China. We need to protect our interests and values, but not at the cost of yeah. um, academic exchange with China, trade, uh, building a future together, working on climate change. Abe understood that. He was thought of as a hawk, but he fundamentally understood that. I think that's well understood here and in, and in Australia. If you read the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, that element is not in there. Right. So it's all competition as it, you know, it, understandably, given American politics. So I, I think this sort of legacy of Abe is the next unwritten chapter is how does the Biden administration mm. get to a place where you compete and cooperate? And uh, this will be something we'll do at the center, and you're going to help us. Because <laughs> I think Australian agency and influence in Washington on this is also very, very, yeah. in some ways, more significant than Japan's right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree with you that, um, you know, I think it's quite underappreciated how much Abe actually had significant agency and, and really as a what we consider Australia and Japan being mm. kind of junior partners of America um, actually led the United States in so many different ways. Um, now I, I wanted to ask you I guess um, you know even when Shinzo Abe stepped down as leader there was a lot of questions mm. about uh, whether his legacy would endure. So a lot of the constitutional amendments, the kind of um, even the approach as you just said uh, how Abe really re-established a relationship with China on Japan's terms. So putting national interests first um, and really weathering the storm and that ch the China relationship actually turned out to be better as a result of that. Um, now that Shinzo Abe has actually passed away, there'll be even more questions I think about how enduring his legacy can be when he's not in, no longer there to defend it, he's not in the party, he's, his voice is not able to be heard. What, what do you think about um, the prospects of his legacy? I think they're very strong. Um, uh, I interviewed for my book um, uh, Mr. Edano, the head of the Japan Constitutional Democratic Party, which um, at, the, at, at the time, before the last election, was the largest opposition party on the left. Yeah. And I asked him, what would you do differently than Abe? And he got quiet for a minute, and then he said, at this point, not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. We would emphasize multilateralism more. We'd emphasize climate change more. Sort of class, you know, classic left-right politics in the era of the rise of China. <laughs> um, 
and it gets to this social science question of structure versus agency. And Abe's agency was very significant. He was not uncomplicated. He had, I will uh, say now uh, what I couldn't say at the time, but President Bush, after I left the White House, asked me to talk to Abe about issues like history right. because his views were spicy. <laughs> um, and I did. And he, he actually uh, embraced the discussions. Um, so he wasn't uncomplicated. His agency, his influence was huge. But the reason I believe it will continue this, this trajectory is structure. No. So Abe didn't invent a lot of these ideas. Um, uh, previous Japanese governments, uh, center left and center right, LDP and DPJ, all were lurching towards the same ideas. Collective defense, the quad, all of these things were, were building in Japan yeah. because the choices were limited. Uh, with China's growing power and influence, but also with economic dependence on China. So I think the structure explains a lot. It's also why when Donald Trump became president, I, I tried to explain to people here and in Japan, things will not change as much as you think. Right. St structure um, uh, uh, matters. So I think yeah. the, the geopolitical realities mean that his trajectory will continue. The first chapter of the book is a history going back to Nihon Koki, the first chronicles of Japanese thinking about Asia. Yeah. Um, I had to brush off my ancient Japanese Chinese character reading. It was painful. But um, I finally cheated and read it in translation. But um, uh, I tried to argue historically and geographically why structure. Mm -hmm. uh, Japan has been competing with China since the 6th century, um, but also interdependent. So those kind of things yeah. you know, pretty much shape the choices that leaders will have. And you think there's a, a strong consensus domestically among political parties to keep that legacy going? Do you think even his passing might, in fact, increase that? Yeah, commitment? it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, he died at a time when the government was debating a new national security strategy. One of the things he did was, in 2013, produce Japan's first national security strategy. Um, and uh, 10 years later, they're putting up new version out and, and defense, five-year defense plans and things. And there's a robust debate about doubling defense spending, essentially going to 2% of GDP, right. which he favored. And I think his passing is actually adding some momentum. And the question to me about the next chapter for Japan is not the direction, but the implementation. Um, will Japan spend the money it has to spend right. uh, to, to, to maintain a balance of power? Will Japan reconcile with Korea in yeah. a way that will, you know, maintain a favorable balance of power? You know, those kinds of questions. Right. Not so different from questions facing the governments in Canberra. Right. How do you pay for all this? Yeah. How do you make the hard choices? Right. How do you maintain a relationship with China while you're competing? Yeah. Those are tough, but I think the trajectory yeah. is the same. Okay. I guess it actually is a good segue to the next thing I wanted to yeah. ask you, which is, you know, um, Shinzo Abe wanted Japan to be a normal power. It wanted it to be a, a leader amongst democracies uh, in a region where we have this big overbearing neighbor. Um, yet there are a lot of people who would be thinking um, there are some constraints in Japanese society. It still has a very stagnant economy, um, an aging population, um, yep. a declining population, a shrinking population. So um, to what extent do you think uh, we can, can we rely on Japan to be that linchpin that can step up and play a bigger role, the, the role that it wants to play, but is it yeah. going to be capable of I mean, doing that? Um, you know, Japan has played a, a, a actually unexpected almost uh, mm. uh, uh, role in leadership, thought leadership, 
you know, yeah. this Indo-Pacific concept and the quad and so forth. But you need some muscle, <laughs> not just brain. And the, the demographic picture is tough. Yeah. When I taught courses on Japan at Georgetown um, a few years ago, when Japanese prime ministers were changing every year and the demographic picture was declining, I told my Japanese students, I said, you need to take very careful notes on this course on Japanese politics because at the current rate of population decline and turnover of prime ministers, all of you will be prime minister of Japan before <laughs> you, you know. Um, these are real, I joke, but these are real serious structural yeah. constraints. Abe's you know, genius was squeezing more with less yeah. by external balancing, by building partnerships, especially with Australia, but with India. Um, he, he started some, some, some uh, initiatives that would give Japan more power. One really interesting one is women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. Abe um, used his position to push corporations and the government hard to empower women in Japan more. Because he read studies that showed that if Japan had the rate of women's empowerment of the OECD average, so you know, closer to Australia, it would give significant productivity gains. Right. Um, the, the, the macroeconomics of women's empowerment are unambiguous. It's mm -hmm. my wife's area of expertise. And uh, he brought about 3 million women into the workforce, right. uh, which in, in Western Europe or North America, that's actually a huge public policy success. success. Um, but daycare doesn't. Uh, 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 suffice. I mean, there are lots of sort of next, now what? You know, he strengthened the defense establishment. He changed the constitutional interpretation to allow more collective defense. With Actually, it was really interesting when I was reading the diet interpolations, and Abi would go in the diet, 100 hours of debate to explain what he was doing to change the interpretation of Japan's constitution to allow collective security. Um, which we in the Australia Alliance have. And whenever he gave examples of the US, the press would kind of go, eh. But whenever he said, and we can do this with Australia, his ratings went up. <laughs> he played the Australia card quite successfully. Right. Um, but will they, you know, they're going to have to do more. They're going to have to solve these remaining problems with immense empowerment. They, the, 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 the economy is pretty good for an aging economy. But there are big structural reforms that are needed to really get growth. So yeah, there's, there's an a lot of implementation issues that, um, that uh, take political guts. Um, and we'll see. Kishida's in a pretty strong position politically, the current prime minister. Yeah. But you know, politics is tough, as Kirsten and others here know. <laughs> and it's hard to predict. Hard to predict what's going to happen in the future, I guess. Yeah. We're always asking, being asked for crystal balling. Yeah. The yeah. one great thing Japan has going for it, it particularly compared to the US, is it's not a polarized society. Yeah, I think even compared to Australia. Um, globalization hit Japan in some ways a lot earlier than the rest of us. And um, you don't have a Brexit or a MAGA Trump phenomenon in Japan. You have nationalism like everywhere. But the society is not deeply polarized. Um, so in that sense, that's, a, that's a national asset yep. um, to move forward. But tough choices still. Yeah. Um, I think I'd like to move to um, looking at Australia and Japan and the United States. So, you know, we both have an alliance with the United States. Uh, we all have to manage this um, consistent fear of either entrapment mm. um, or fear of abandonment. And I think in your book, um, you explain quite well how Abe managed to manage those, um, those two dynamics um, and actually make Japan even more 
relevant and important to the United States. Um, are there uh, things that we can learn in Australia about Abe's approach? Um, so I'm a, a, a Japan and Korea expert, and if you're a Japan expert and then you become a Korea expert, when I learned Korean, I had a Japanese accent. And my Korean professor finally said, lose the Japanese accent. If you have to have an accent, have an American accent. <laughs> so, so I was trained early on, don't give advice to Korea from Japan. It won't go well in Korea. I'm not sure yet how it will go in Australia if I give <laughs> advice to Australia from Japan. I have been really struck, and Peter Dean's made me smarter on this, on some really interesting parallels, though, between Australia and Japan. So Peter's doing a lot of work now, and we're going to do more, I hope, on sovereignty. And I, if, to correct me if I'm wrong, but in defense, there's actually an office for sovereignty, right? Uh, there's a, a bit of work being done on Yeah. So, um, uh, so that goes back to this Thucydides concept from the Peloponnesian Wars you're referencing, that smaller allies face this dilemma. On the one hand, if they get too close to the big ally, they risk getting entrapped, Gallipoli, mm. <laughs> pulled into wars and fights they don't want. On the other hand, if they try to keep their distance, they risk being abandoned and swallowed by the uh, enemy. And one way to think about what Abe did was, for most of Japanese history, the, the fear of entrapment was big. So Japan used the Peace Clause, Article 9 of the Constitution, to say to the United States, oh, we'd love to help you in Vietnam, but the Constitution, which you, you Americans wrote, won't let us. And so it was a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you like Monopoly. And Abe realized, because of Chinese encroachment, that that was no longer the big danger. The big danger was abandonment, and that he needed to lock the Americans in. So his whole thrust was creating a basis for joint operations, joint planning, and not trying to keep a distance. Um, the US-Australia alliance is also becoming much more interdependent, both ways. You know, AUKUS is the best example. But as Alan DuPont knows, we, the US is going to need, frankly, to operate out of northern territories in Darwin. We're going to need access yeah. to um, Henderson and, and uh, HMS Sterling in Western uh, Australia. And Australia is going to need us to be there. So we're becoming much more interdependent on each other. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is an, some, although the US-Australia alliance is as close as any, and in some ways even closer than the UK now. You go to the US Army Pacific, as Peter knows, the deputy commander of US Army Pacific is Australian. You know, and there are other places in the US system where Australia is more, especially in this region, more in our system than, than anyone. But we're getting to a level where we're, because of the China challenge, uh, we are, um, we're really dependent on each other. Right. And so um, I, I sense, I think this sovereignty work we're going to do looking at Australia, Japan, NATO, uh, um, is going to be interesting because allies now, the, the dilemma Thucydides identifies doesn't matter if you're New Zealand. As, 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 as Kissinger once quipped, New Zealand is a, and I love New Zealand, <laughs> but New Zealand is a strategic dagger aimed at the heart of Antarctica. You know? <laughs> um, but if you live in a dangerous neighborhood, yeah. which, which Japan has and increasingly Australia now lives in dangerous, it becomes more acute. Yeah. And uh, how Australia um, navigates this is really important, I think. Right. Japan is also going through it, but also it's really important for the United States to understand and be sensitive to these questions. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of parallels. Could yeah. Australia learn from Japan? I think, honestly, both countries could learn from each other on how you manage the US. 
Now, I'm wondering whether it's time to open it up to Q&A. Uh, I do have a couple of more questions if no one else does, but I don't want to monopolise Mike. So, do we have any questions from the audience? One from Alan Dupont. Mike, I'm uh, quite sorry. Thank you. Mike, I'm quite curious about the addendum you've added to your uh, little profile here of the US Study Centre when you said that um, you know, we want to have solutions to the, for the alliance. So that sort of implies that there are problems with the alliance. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could just give it sort of uh, elaborate a little bit on your views about the alliance as it is today and yeah. what some of the problems are. Um, there are, I've worked on the US-Korea alliance quite a bit, US-Japan alliance, um, Taiwan, not an alliance. The US-Australia alliance has far fewer problems, but huge homework assignments huge complicated homework assignments. Um, and that's where the solutions are, are needed. So for example, on AUKUS, um, the United States has not transferred nuclear submarine propulsion technology to anyone except Britain. And that was before almost all of us, probably all of us were born. Um, that requires navigating the American export control system, understanding the Navy. It requires the US to understand um, uh, pockets of industrial capacity in Australia that they don't already know for industry to talk to each other. That's the kind of area where I think we, we can use our position amidst these stakeholders to connect pe institutions, people, and, and look for solutions. Because AUKUS, as you know, is very complicated. Um, the technology issue. Um, my understanding is the government is here is looking at new export controls rules. Um, we have these debates in the US. I did a project uh, a year ago where I interviewed um, 10 university presidents in the United States, big, you know, MIT, Caltech, um, about China. And um, uh, big challenge. How do you maintain an open, innovative? One university president told me that if we had not had um, open research with China, his university, which played a major role in MNRA, would have been about two months behind where they ended up. Uh, on the other hand, um, it's significant concerns, legitimate concerns, about intellectual property theft, um, the role of the Ministry of State Security and PLA. So very complicated. So how do you innovate uh, when you're at the same time trying to um, uh, protect key technologies, especially in AI, quantum, where University of Sydney, Sydney strong, without killing innovation and exchange and collaboration? So. Um, these are the kinds of things that require uh, connecting uh, uh, thinkers. And another one, which I haven't mentioned, is democracy. Um, you know, President Biden announced his summit for democracy. Um, uh, the Australian government fully participated, but there was great discomfort <laughs> at, um, at uh, what looked like an American approach that pitted autocracies against democracies. And the interesting thing, Levine and I were talking about this earlier. My wife works on women's empowerment and gender uh, norms and development, and half of her work is with DFAT. When you get on the ground in Timor-Leste or Sri Lanka, and you have a DFAT or USAID or state or NGOs, they talk the same language. They do the same thing. But when you step back and talk about the role of democracy and governance in foreign policy strategy, the American and Australian parliament and Congress the strategic community are 
not talking the same language. So we're, 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 we're working on a project to have a dialogue, a US-Australia dialogue, on, on this topic. And then um, uh, I run a thing called the Sunnylands Initiative. I'm one of the conveners where we have um, Supreme Court justices, uh, former foreign ministers like Marty Nadalagao from Indonesia, who, um, who talk about democracy in an Asian context. And we're going to host it here at the University of Sydney next year, by the way, um, and then uh, bring in people from the Faculty of um, Arts and Social Science and so forth to have a, a discussion. So th th this is, it's, it's, a, it, it's a practical issue, but it's also an issue about how we think about it. Um, so those are a couple of, of examples. Um, I think the baseline of a lot of this is um, helping Australians understand the American system and connecting with the right people. But it's also helping Americans understand the Australian system and connect with the right people. This is Lavina's area of expertise too, by the way. That, that, so we're going to en enlist her in this effort. <laughs> now we've got one question up the back. Would you introduce yourself as well? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm Ryosuke Hanada, currently the PhD student at Macquarie and a former research fellow at the JIIA, the Kokmonken. Thank you very much for your presentation. And my question is about China, especially after the recent Taiwan crisis. I think um, Abe's policy was believing or expecting the China's behavior could be changed through the external balancing and internal balancing. Um, should we continue this um, expectation, especially regarding the, you know, after the China's quite assertive actions around the Taiwan Strait? That's uh, my question. A short comment on the Dr. Green's um, polarization in Japan. Yeah. I personally, from a young Japanese perspective, I like, I like to see more polarization because <laughs> the current consensus is like heading to the steady declining. There's no significant mm. debate. It's like a pouring medicines mm. rather than making some surgery mm. on the Japanese economy. So that's my personal, that's very, uh, you know, young Japanese perspective. Thank you very much. Maybe a little more debate would, 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 would make these hard decisions happen. Yeah, that's mm. a good point. On, on China, you're, you're Bates Gill's uh, PhD student, right? So Bates is a good friend, former, we've written a book together in the past. I just, if you, I have a podcast, did I mention that? <laughs> <laughs> Called The Asia Chessboard, which, um, and Bates was, is going to be the guest next week on his new book, which is, uh, I guess Bates isn't here, but really, really interesting book on Xi Jinping's China. Um, and uh, I'm sure you've read the book, but uh, I quizzed him on this on the podcast, and um, his view, I think I'm characterizing it right, is uh, the China we see is the China we get. Um, our ability to change Xi Jinping's trajectory for China is pretty limited. That, that's about as set as Abe's mm -hmm. trajectory for Japan. Um, doesn't mean we're going to have a war. Doesn't mean we can't cooperate. But, it, but, but the sort of muscular, nationalistic um, uh, attitude uh, coming out of Zhang Nanghai, Bates argues, and I think I agree, is a 5, 10, 15 year future. Um, so the new Indo-Pacific strategy that came out of the White House um, uh, argues that the US and US allies cannot shape China's choices. So we have to shape the environment around China, um, which is right, but it's not enough in my view. Um, uh, I think. We have to do that, and the Solomon Islands is one example. Um, so there's a contest. But um, uh, I think we have to have a long-term view of China. Um, and you know, the, the 
the weakness in the US strategy, as I said, is it doesn't have that right now. Nobody in Washington is articulating what life with China is like in 10, 15, 20 years if we're successful. Um, interestingly, the, the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan, Abe's um, core supporters, uh, uh, before he was uh, killed, put out their vision from the ruling party uh, for Japan's strategy. And it's talks they want to increase defense spending to 2% of GDP. They want 1,000 cruise missiles. It's pretty hawkish. But the second paragraph, if I remember correctly, starts, our goal is to have a productive relationship with China. Um, you don't see that in the American documents right now. Um, and uh, we may not be able to change Xi Jinping's vision for China, and, and, and Bates and other China scholars are coming to this conclusion, but we can plant the seeds for a longer term relationship. Um, one way to do that would be to make, uh, um, for American trade policy to be more focused on market access and uh, integration. Um, and there are other ways to do it as well. So um, Bates has it right, but um, 10 years isn't that long. <laughs> we, we, sh we should be looking sort of how we bend the arc of history longer term. Do we have time for one more? Thank you. Uh, Tom Wilkins, University of hey, Sydney Tom. and, uh, and uh, Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Now, if the um, increase to 2% of uh, GDP defence spending actually occurs, um, what sort of new capabilities do you think uh, we can expect to see in the Japanese uh, portfolio? And if you care to venture out on a limb, what would you like to see? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, uh, the, the, big, the big change in the new midterm defense plan is um, the, well, it's actually not out yet. The government's still deliberating it, but the LDP has its version and things are leaking out. And the, the, big, the big new piece is, is this so-called, uh, they call it enemy-based counter-strike capability, but it's strike, it's precision strike. It's, it's Tomahawk-type missiles, cruise missiles, um, uh, JDAMs, JRASMs, all these strike things. It's very new for Japan. Um, the historic division of roles and missions in the US-Japan alliance was that Japan would be the shield, so Aegis, air defense, anti-Semitic warfare, and America would be the spear. We would be the ones who caused harm and violence to the enemy. Um, now that's changing, and Japan is developing strike, and, um, uh, and that's a, a, a big piece of uh, the change now. Um, what would I like to see? Well. Um, this is getting very wonkish. I once worked in the Pentagon, and Tom, I know you know all the acronyms, and everyone else will have to forgive us, but <laughs> the, um, if Japan's gonna develop a strike capability, then um, we need more of a joint and combined command relationship like we have in Korea. The Pentagon, the White House, is not gonna be excited about an independent Japanese ability to hit North Korea or China, and then ask us to help deal with the consequences. So we've got to have the kind of jointness that we have with the US-Korea alliance or NATO. It's not a joint and combined command. Actually, neither is Australia, technically. But we need to move in that direction. We need command and control relationships. Um, uh, second, who's going to build all these missiles? Um, Raytheon, Lockheed, you look at Ukraine, the US, if reports are right, 70% of our um, um, uh, anti-tank missiles, 70% of our inventory has been used in Ukraine. So who's going to build these for Japan? Adelaide. 
<laughs> so the Australian sovereign missile, uh, a guided missile enterprise, um, is a, a huge possibility, a huge, and pieces will be in North South Wales and, and Perth and elsewhere, I gather, huge opportunity for Australia and Japan, US, UK to work together um, to create this, this capability. Um, and, uh, and then there's a question of, will Japan get to 2%? That would be a, Japan's defense budget is about 50 billion a year. To get to 2%, they'd have to add another 50 billion. Japan, in the last 20 years, has not added 50 billion to their budget for anything. <laughs> so um, it's a big ask. By the way, not so different for Australia. Um, how is Australia going to pay for AUKUS, the sovereign missile? I mean, that's, I think, I predict there's a debate coming here about defense spending, too. Um, and, and we're democracies, and the public's going to have to decide how much. Are they willing to spend to defend the country? And you know, th th this this is coming in Japan, and I think it's probably coming in Australia as well, and in the U.S. By the way, but it's going to be uh, the midterm. Our midterms are going to are going to probably not. There won't be a debate about it, but but the midterms will start to after the midterms. The new Congress is going to debate it too. Well, thank you, Mike, and sure. thank you all of you for um, great questions. Um, Please join me in thanking Mike for a great conversation. And having looked at, uh, and, and thank you, sorry, Mike, uh, Mark Mark's Bailey, gonna you're going yeah. yeah. to come up. Uh, so thank you, Mike. Thanks, Lavina. Great having you right. associated with us. Thanks. That could have been. Um, good evening. I'm Mark Bailey, the chair of the uh, United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Um, and I'd like to thank you all for attending this evening's event and take this opportunity to reinforce how fortunate we are um, to have someone of Mike's calibre lead the centre. Um, this is very serendipitous. Um, uh, from the perspective, Mike was able to join us for a dinner that we hosted in Canberra at the end of March um, to actually celebrate the um, delayed 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty. I think uh, I'm right, if I'm right, the 1st of September is the 71st anniversary today. Uh, I know we uh, had an event uh, last year, virtual event, to celebrate it, and we lit the Opera House up with the Australian and US flags. But uh, Mike came to that event, and uh, it was an opportunity to announce his uh, arrival at the centre. Um, I think he shared a table with you, Mark. Unfortunately, the uh, result of that uh, dinner was the sharing of COVID <laughs> at that table. Um, which meant uh, Mike was delayed in returning to the US um, to uh, conduct a book launch for this book in the US. So we're glad to be able to re reciprocate tonight. So thank you. Um, the Australian-US alliance has been a lifetime passion for Mike and he's the most senior American to accept this kind of posting in Australia. He personally, as he acknowledged, witnessed um, the conception of the centre when he was in the Oval Office with President Bush and Prime Minister Howard in 2004. Uh, the Centre was a way to explain the US with all its idiosyncrasies, and we've certainly seen some of those over the past four or five years, and contradictions, to enlighten more Australians about their closest ally. As we have heard tonight, Mike has an exciting vision for the Centre. Mike also believes that Japan has an important role to play in the challenging relationship with China, and the Centre is lucky to have such a distinguished expert uh, uh, in, in Japanese affairs joining us. 
Mike worked in Japan, where he got to know Carolyn Kennedy uh, when she was the US ambassador to the Japanese capital. Uh, the Senate's leadership team, as he uh, talked earlier, met with the ambassador today, and we look forward to working closely with her. I'd also like to acknowledge here with us this evening US Consul General uh, Christine Elder. Christine, I yes, welcome. Um, and I want to thank the, the Vice Chancellor of the University, Mark Scott, uh, being with us and, uh, and providing some opening comments. Um, for those of you, and, and also uh, Kirsten Andrews, who's the board director of the US Centre, recently joined uh, a few months ago. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the work of the centre, I'd like just to provide some background. The centre was established by the American Australian Association in joint venture with the University of Sydney in 2006. Its mission, uh, as we've heard a little bit tonight, is to rigorously, an rigorously analyse the United States to provide Australians with a balanced view of the US and an opportunity to learn and gain insight to what undoubtedly is our most important strategic ally. It also exists to strengthen the US-Australian relationship. The centre implements its mission by being research focused, but also this is significantly supported by the teaching undertaken by the centre's faculty at UCID across a range of US-related subjects, and also our ability to convene events such as this evening. It's very pleasing, as Mike alluded to earlier, that I think we've got record enrolments in our uh, teaching uh, program uh, at the centre uh, this, this year. Its mission has allowed the centre, during its 16-year his history, to educate over 10,000 students author more than a thousand journal articles, research reports, opinion pieces and books, and convene in excess of a thousand events with tens of thousands of attendees. Looking forward, as we've alluded to, um, under Mike's leadership, you will see an increased focus on the centre using its convening power with relevant stakeholders, combined with its impactful research, to not only identify the significant issues confronting our alliance with the US, but importantly to provide some potential solutions to those issues. So with that, um, many thanks to the team at the Study Centre uh, who have put this work to pull this event together this evening. I'd like to acknowledge our COO, Edward Parmasano, uh, Janine Pinto, Umba Latifat, Marie Koch, uh, Jared Monshine and Gopika Nair. And finally, um, thank you all for joining us this evening. Uh, please join us for some drinks and some networking opportunities uh, uh, now. Thank you again. Thank you.